Boy, you guys are friendly this morning. Some mornings you're not so friendly. (laughs) That's not true. Uh, Would you uh, just bow with me and let's pray and uh, go to the Lord before we go to uh, his word. We need his help. Our Father, uh, we thank you that we can call you Father, that you are not just a force or a, a distant abstract deity, but personal and fatherly that you would allow us to approach you in such a way. Uh, God, I pray even that as we uh, study your word this morning, that we would not just know the biblical stories, but that we would know the biblical story of a father who delights in his children and wants to dwell with us. Uh, The extent that you would go to to make that possible, the giving of your beloved son who is God himself, and the leaving of your Holy Spirit who is God himself, that the triune God would be involved in the redemption of mankind. What a sweet thing. And we rejoice in that, even as we understand it, and we know we're just scratching the surface of the goodness of our redemption in Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, give us now quick minds, hearts quick to see and longing to know and longing to love the God of the Word as we study now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn to Numbers 14. Uh, We're going to be here for actually two weeks. The more I was working on this, I thought, I got two messages here, and I'm not going to do two messages in one day, so you're welcome. (laughs) Numbers 14. In uh, sort of good old classic Western movies, uh, of which I am a fan, uh, there's very commonly a point in the film where the good guy has kind of had enough of the bad guy. And good guy with a sense of righteousness and uh, conviction in his voice faces off with bad guy and says something like, listen, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way, very often tapping the heels of his pistols, right? This is also effective uh, in parenting, just so you know, (laughs) we find, not the heels, but... uh, You can stand with a menacing posture in the doorway to your child's messy room, holding a black trash bag, right? And say, listen, we can do this the easy way or we can can do this the hard way. And uh, I I tell you what, our kids know about Black Trash Bag Day. Uh, Usually, uh, they're given about 24 hours notice and then the threat, I'm coming in with the black trash bag. And whatever isn't cleaned up, whatever debris is left behind, what I determine debris to be, or one of us, uh, it's going. And those days usually end with weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Uh, In chapter 14 of Numbers, God squares off with Israel in uh, a similar fashion. Ten of twelve spies uh, come back with a bad report that is a misleading report. They misrepresent what they saw in the land. After 40 days of recon, they synthesize it by saying, the land devours its people. It's as though they explored Fairbanks, right? Not Canaan. The land devours its people. But two spies, Caleb and Joshua, bring back a report of the goodness of the land. And yes, there are foes. There are obstacles. The buildings are intense. The enemy overwhelming. But... They have confidence because of the empowering presence of God and because of the clear and explicit promise of God 
And this is what bolsters them and gives them confidence, uh, even though what they see. Uh, Look at verse 27, actually. I've told you we're in Numbers 14, but let's go back and look at 13 and get a running start at it here. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem, I love this line. We, this is like a flashback to junior high right here. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, And we looked the same to them. We looked the same to them. And so Israel here very soberingly chooses fear over faith. They choose the hard way, so to speak. And our passage, Numbers 14, I think is going to dramatically illustrate for us one of the great paradoxes of the faith. And that is this. God's way is the better way. Though often it is seemingly costlier at first, it is the more rewarding at last. And that is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. That the harder choice on the front end turns out to be the more rewarding choice on the back end. And let's look at this drama here to see how it kind of plays out, this principle plays out in our story. Now we're in chapter 14, verse 1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Mark those words, they will come back. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Boy, this is, this is serious stuff. They're not just hypothetically plotting and scheming here. They're making logistical plans. They have every intention of rebelling with action, uh, of doing so. And I think what we learn in this first point here is this, that fear robs us of blessing. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a caution here. Uh, I'm only going through half your outline this morning. That portion at the bottom of your outline that's kind of grayed out is not just your vision failing you. It's not your bifocals playing tricks on you. We're just doing the top half this morning, so don't go into panic mode when we're uh, a long way in and only a short way into our outline. But our first point here is that fear robs us of blessing. Uh, I think every one of us, if we're honest, uh, has a genuine fear, something that uh, we are really afraid of. Uh, My good friend Brent is afraid of spiders, and uh, if you know Brent, you know how fun that is for the rest of us who call ourselves his friends. Um, We get to tease him about that. Uh, I'm quite honestly a little bit afraid of heights, not tragically, but enough that I should be teased for it. I don't really even like going over the fourth step on my ladder, my six-foot ladder. <laughs> There's a little sticker right on there that says, right, don't go above this step. 
and I like to honor that sticker. That's, <laughs> I'm a compliant sort of fella. And um, our house, every now and then, uh, requires someone to go up on the roof. And our house is uh, basically a three-story. There's a half or a daylight basement, so half of it is, is exposed. And then two stories on top of that. And then there is a metal roof uh, with a 612 pitch, if you know what that is. And no snow breaks. And a little bit of dust from some of the trees around. And I do not like to go up there. And uh, I've been up there a couple of times uh, with some of you in the church, and I just get laughed at because my knees are shaking like you can see them. And as bad as it is being up there, that's not the worst part. The worst part is when you make the decision, I now need to go down, which is where I want to be, but I don't want to get there, right? This is the scary tension that you find yourself in, and you walk to the edge, and the ladder's there, and you, you step over and you know what I mean? That is a terrifying step for me. And uh, like, seriously, tears in the eyes kind of thing here. It has also been suggested that I might be afraid of cats. <laughs> um, a couple of years ago, we had an animal activist in our college group. And um, one night she said, with genuine concern and compassion in her voice, Eric, are you really afraid of cats? Have you had like a traumatic experience? And I was like, yeah, every experience with a cat. It's like playing with demons. That's how I feel about them. Can I, did I get an amen over here? I believe I heard it. So all of us have fears, right? Uh, we do. Uh, whether it's public speaking or backing a trailer in front of a bunch of capable fellas, Right? or darkness, or bears, or snakes, or flying, Swedish food, for good reason, holding a baby, changing a diaper, fear of long-winded preachers, don't need, no, we don't need the amen there, I could feel it coming, I could feel it. But a friend of mine uh, often sort of quips, uh, don't let fear make decisions for you. And I like that. That's interesting. It's pithy. Uh, it's just a little bit earthy is the thing. It's more or less a bumper sticker. What we find here in the scriptures in our passage is that there is a bigger thing than just fear here. But what this fear in Israel reveals, and that is this, their lack of faith. They're not simply afraid of a thing or of many things, but they don't have a robust faith in God. They don't believe and God's expressed word and his expressed promises. And so their fear here is not just a phobia like I've discussed here, but it is really blasphemy, disbelief in God himself. And what we find here is that Moses is rightly concerned for the fate of the people who have such an anemic faith. Look at verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. This is, this is a humbling, sort of supplicating posture. It's performed in order to get their attention and to beg of them to change their mind. Don't do this thing uh, that you're considering here. Please don't do this. And Moses' concern is uh, legitimate, as we'll see here. It's, again, his concern is not just that they wouldn't inherit the land or that they've missed out on a really good real estate deal here, right? 
The issue is his concern that they would incur the anger of God and the discipline of God, which, to be honest, is waiting for any and all of us when we reject God. Because God is a father who disciplines those he loves. And when we are running from him, he will bring us back through tough but loving discipline here. Look at verse 6. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and it will, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Nice turn of phrase there. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked of stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the signs I have performed among them, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a great nation, greater and stronger than they. And so what's amazing here is we find God basically saying, hey, I'm, I'm ready to start over with a whole new group of prospects. I'll keep Moses, I'll keep Caleb and Joshua, but uh, this is going to be a rebuilding year. Uh, we see sports teams do this all the time, right? Whether it's a football team or a basketball team, they get to a point when it's like, hey, this chemistry just isn't working. We're going to get rid of these few athletes who are... Uh, you know, overpaid and underperforming and grumbling, and we're going to start with a steady coach and a few inexpensive uh, veterans to kind of shore things up. We'll get some young prospects and number one draft picks or the best draft picks we can get, and we're going to start over. And God seems to tell Moses, I'm ready to do the same. We'll keep you and these two fellows, but this whole generation that is unwilling to believe in me we're going to leave outside of the blessing that I had intended for them. Skip down in your Bibles, if you will, to 21 here. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land uh, he went to and his descendants will inherit it. And so again, we see really the sobering consequence to uh, Israel's disobedience that God exempts the generation from entering the promised land. And there's a lesson for us in, in this, and that is this. That disobedience always brings about eventual consequences. Disobedience always brings about eventual consequences. Uh, We may get away with our disobedience for a while, or at least think that we are. But God is not mocked, and a man reaps what he sows. An important thing to understand here is that sin is not just an arbitrary list of things that God has said, hey, don't do these things for no particular reason. But sin is inherently destructive to us, to our nature, to our souls, to our very lives. It's inherently destructive. And that's why God has forbidden them. 
He is a loving father who has prohibited only what will harm us. Uh, or I like, to, I like the way Sam Andreatis said this. He was a, he's a friend of ours, right? A visitor who came to do CTF a few years ago. And he made this really provocative statement that I had to chew on for a little bit. He says, God only commands good things. God only commands good things. And I think our struggle, as, it, as with Israel's here, is we're not sure if we really believe that or not. We see the clear command of God, and we may know it's the hard way, at least at first, and we're just not sure if he really has commanded a good thing. And we think like Israel, well, maybe he's taking us into this place, which is going to be rough. It's the same thing that Adam and Eve dealt with at the garden, right? God has given them all of the world and all kinds of liberty. One prohibition, don't eat the fruit from this tree. And their hearts think God is withholding something good from us. So, of course, we want that. And Israel here is the same. Remember back in Egypt, we had pots of meat. We had all of these things. Let's go back. But I think what, we're, what we learn here is this, that disobedience always brings about an eventual consequence here. And I think something else that emerges from this passage, to be honest, is a little bit, uh, it's important, but it's a little bit uncomfortable, uh, this principle, and that is this, that God is more committed to his own glory than he is to just giving us what we want. I don't know if you've really squared off with that yet or not, but it's true. And this does not settle very neatly into contemporary Christian theology. Uh, It seems that we constantly want to think that God is here for us or just for me rather than the other way around. But the scriptures affirm again and again that God is the central and supreme being of the universe and that we're here for him. He was not needy and therefore making us, but out of his joy and his ebullient, effusive nature and the love that he had, completely satisfied in the triune God, he had thought it better to share this with others and therefore created. I love the words of Blaise Pascal when he says uh, that God has made man in his own image and man continues to try to return the favor. We want to just flip things around. But what we see here in the scriptures, I think consistently, is that God is first and foremost for himself and even the rescue and the redemption of mankind is really for the glory of God's name. We even like to say things like, well, we've invited God into our life, which is silly. God has invited us into his life. His life is eternal and enduring. Ours is passing. We don't invite God into our life. God has invited us to enjoy his life and what he's doing in the grand scope of things. And what I'm getting at here is what we might call the supremacy of God. And it's an uncomfortable topic for our modern culture, especially Christian culture, um, because I think one of the things that we do steadily, maybe even unknowingly, is we try to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves. Uh, I'll give you an example of this, even in our worship, uh, not from this morning. And I sort of cringe to do this, but I might, because I might be ruining a song, but if it needs to be ruined, it needs to be ruined. Um, one of the songs that we sing here, I have a hard time with one of the lines in it. Uh, in fact, I have a hard time with all kinds of things. It's tough living in my head. But <laughs> it's this song that starts with the great title, Above All. Some of you already know the one I'm talking about. 
the second verse says this, above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all wealth and treasures of the earth, there's no way to measure what you're worth. And then we get to the chorus, you know this? Crucified, laid behind the stone, you lived to die, rejected and alone, like a rose trampled on the ground. You took the fall and thought of me above all? Is that true? I'm not sure about it. I put it to you for your ponderings. I find in the scriptures that God is first and foremost for himself, supremely for himself, for his name, for his glory. And yes, he thought of us. Yes, he sacrificed his son. Yes, the son gave of himself for us at his own cost. Absolutely. To what end? For our salvation and his glory. So I think we can sing that in a right way and we can probably also sing it in a wrong way. And that's the way it is with much of Christian worship music these days. But what I want to reclaim here is as a bit of this understanding. God is first and foremost for himself. And if he weren't, it would be idolatry. The supremacy of God is the clear teaching of the scriptures. And I think it's something that Moses seems to grasp even something that's evident in Moses' own prayers here. And I think that, that's a reason why God and Moses are maybe so close. Because Moses is convinced of the supremacy of God, and he lives it out in his life. Uh, we see this actually in his prayers here. So Moses is rightly concerned for the name of God. Verse 12, God says, I will strike them down with the plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. And here we go. Here's Moses' concern. Verse 13. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard of you, Lord, heard that you, Lord, are with these people, and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, and that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land. He promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. I love the heart of Moses here. I mean, his concern is for the name of God, for the promise of God, for what God had said he would do. He knows that God could be, would be absolutely just in doing this, but his concern is that he would be defamed among the nations. And if I'm honest with you, when I look at Moses' heart for God himself, it causes me to look at and question some of my own prayers. And if I'm honest with you, a lot of my prayers are very saturated with what I want. My will, my way, my heart's desire for something. They are the God just give me prayers, right? And I'll offer the caveat up front because I can already hear your minds, your contrarian minds spooling at me. Aren't we taught to pray for what we need, for what we want? Yes, we are. And the Psalms are filled with passages there. But I suspect that we are quite out of balance in this. How often do we pray for the name of God? For the glory of God? For the spread of his kingdom? For widespread knowledge of his glory? compared to my prayers 
for what I want to just give me prayers. Consider the Westminster Catechism, the first question, right? Which asks, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, right? I think our current culture would answer it this way. What is the chief end of man? To acquire stuff with the illusion that we can enjoy it forever. I think that's about where we live. Uh, And I'm not talking about unbelievers here. I'm talking about people who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but maybe have done so that they can simply wring out of God, out of his hands, things and stuff. Seeing God as sort of our dealer and the supplier of things we want. Uh, Several years ago, I had a chance to take a class down in uh, Portland, Oregon. I went over to a, a church in Bend, Uh, Washington, and my college roommate was uh, leading worship there, and I had a chance to visit with Justin. And uh, during the service, they performed a song that actually was a little bit out of our tradition, I'll just say that. Um, But there was a line in the song that I absolutely loved. It was this, God, we don't want blessings. We want you. And that was the line of the song, and you're singing it over and over again. I thought that was really a beautiful Thing and a beautiful confrontation to what I find to be sort of the consistent concern of my own prayers. Think about how the disciples were taught to pray by Jesus, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be my name. No, hallowed be your name, right? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we've got some give me here, right? Give me this day a whole pantry full of cookies. No, give me this day my daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Those are the give me's. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. forever. Amen. Jesus taught us to pray in such a way that we were concerned for God and for his kingdom and for his glory. And yes, we're a part of that, and we have needs within that. But I suspect that we need the adjustment in our own prayers. I think the self-preoccupation in our own prayers kind of reveals the condition of our hearts. And I think for many of us, we might as well conclude, well, in the name of Eric, amen. Instead of, in the name of Jesus, amen. Because what we're really concerned with oftentimes is our earthly kingdom and not his. But Moses is concerned with God's name, and it's commendable. And I've been kind of thinking over this this week. You know, one of the the great challenges of preaching is that you're looking at a text, and you're not just trying to prepare something to deliver verbally on Sunday morning, but you're dealing with your own heart, right, all week long. Sometimes your own heart's not quite ready for the spoken act on Sunday. So I'm still living with this and dealing with this, but... I have found myself lately asking, and asking other people too, um, a question that might seem funny, but it's this. Do you love God? And I think the obvious and easy answer that we're trained to say is, well, yes, well, yes, I do. But take it a little deeper and live with the question a little bit. Do you love God? Or You could probably substitute a lot of other words in there. You might be comfortable with knowing God or knowing about God or 
telling others about God or living a certain kind of religious life or whatever, but in your heart of hearts, do you have an affection for God himself, a longing for him, and a true and sincere love for him, for who he is? Do you love God? And if I'm honest with you, there are times when I have difficulty saying yes. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying I don't love God at all times and all places. But I'm saying there are times when I have to think, I don't like this part of you, God. Or I don't like what I'm experiencing. Or I don't like what I don't know here. And I'm having some difficulty with an affection for you in this sphere or in this event or in this thing. Quite frankly, what I'm telling you is I know that I need to grow in my love for God, for Him, Himself. St. Augustine has said it this way, the essence of sin is disordered love. The essence of sin is disordered love. And reflecting upon that, Keller has said this, disordered love always leads to misery and breakdown. The only way to reorder our loves is to love God supremely. And there it is. And I think this is the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. To give us not a heart of stone, right, but a heart of flesh. A heart that listens to the Holy Spirit of God. And that is inclined to follow His lead and His promptings. And yes, to know our God, but in knowing Him to learn to love Him. And to love Him supremely. Not just as an accessory of our life. Some of you might feel like, boy, we've gotten a long way from Israel and the land of Canaan here and the giants in front of them and whatnot. But I think, no, I think we've gotten a long way into their hearts uh, and ours. Israel seemed to love God for his stuff. But by contrast, Moses loves God for himself. Not just what he thought he might get out of him. And Caleb and Joshua were the same. Look at verse 24. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly. Isn't that a lovely word? He follows me wholeheartedly. That is what I want, right? That is what I want. Because he follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. This brings us to our second point here. Faith in God and in his promises finds reward. Now I started off my first point saying that fear robs us of blessing. And now the second point, faith finds reward. And these are very preachy, sermony phrases, okay? I see that. And actually my concern is with these words here, blessing and reward, that in hearing those, you might only think of material things. But understand that the reward and the blessing that is given here is not an earthly city or earthly stuff, but God himself. He is the blessing. He is the reward. When we see these things, we're so quick to focus on the material and to miss the relational. How many times in Scripture do you think God says, I will be their God and they will be my people? I actually don't know. There's a little challenge for you. I'd love, to, I'd love to hear over the week or next week, people come back and say, I got 250, I got 75, whatever. It's a bunch. It's right there at the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. 
It's there when they're being taken, when Israel's being taken out of Egypt and being brought to the promised land. It's there at Sinai. It's there perpetually. It's in the New Testament over and over and over again. What God really wants is to be our God and us be his people. The whole tenor of the scripture is set up around God's desire to dwell with mankind. Uh, There's a book in your notes that I would highly recommend to you. It's from Eden to the New Jerusalem. And it shows this, I think, really beautifully. That at the very beginning, we see God creating what the author calls a garden temple. A place that man will dwell with God. And at the very end of the scripture, we see this sort of recreated. An earthly temple where God will dwell again with man. And everything in between is about God creating an opportunity that a sinful people could dwell with a holy God. So the laws are given. The tabernacle is given. Temple 1 is given. Temple 2 is given. Jesus Christ, who calls himself the temple, is given. And then the Holy Spirit is given. All of these things are given so that God may dwell with man. That is his desire, that he would be our God and we would be his people. Let me give it to you in sort of an analogy here. Imagine a man who tenderly blindfolds, tenderly blindfolds the love of his life. Excitedly, he brings the woman he loves to a simple but beautiful country home. And uh, this is a home he's been working on throughout their courtship. And he humbly drops to a knee and extends to her a ring and an enduring covenant. And the woman looks at the home And she looks at the ring. Finally, she looks at the man. And she shakes her head. And she walks away. And as the man sits on the porch, the box closed in his hand. And he sees her get smaller as she walks off into the distance. His heart begins to grieve and to ache. And it has nothing to do with the home or with the ring. His agony is knowing that it was he and his love that was rejected. And so it is with us and God. The treasure that was being laid out here was not just the land or the food that it could produce. So those were good things God was giving to Israel. But the treasure was God himself and the enduring covenant. And that's what Israel callously rejected And that is the great heartache of God here, too. In our story and in our lives, at times, God is a jilted lover. And his heartache is watching us grow smaller as we walk away from what he has extended to us, which, again, is not just about physical things, but about himself. C.S. Lewis said it this way, God cannot give us happiness outside of himself because it is not there. There's no such thing. The whole narrative arc of the scripture is God's desire to dwell with mankind. And if we're going to rightly understand the rebellion of Kadesh Barnea, this is an important passage that runs really the gamut through all of scripture. It reverberates again and again and again. If we're really going to understand that, we need to understand that it was God himself who was rejected here. That he was the very great blessing and he was the very great reward that Israel chose not to grasp. St. Augustine also said it this way, that God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. 
So let's come back to our analogy again here. A man brings his young love to a simple home, removing the blindfold, drops to a knee and extends a ring and offers an enduring covenant. And the woman does not take her eyes off the man. She doesn't look at the home. She doesn't look at the ring. But she looks into his eyes and through them into his heart and she can see that this man is offering to give himself wholly to her. And she agrees. And the two enter into a covenant of mutual self-giving. And this is the proposal of God to Israel. This is the proposal that God makes to you and to me through Jesus Christ. That we would enter into a loving, intimate fellowship with Him where He is our treasure and He is our reward and He is our blessing and everything else is just disordered love. Let's pray. Lord, we see in Israel... Rebels. But we see in Israel also ourselves. That their hearts which are prone to wander are our hearts which are prone to wander. We see disordered love in Israel. Love of things and the want of more. And we see the same in us. And God, I pray that as we read this passage, we would be confronted with our own hearts we would ask ourselves the question, do I really love God? And do I want God for who He is? Or do I just want His blessings? I pray, Lord, that our hearts would want You and be for Your name and Your glory and be for Your supremacy. That our prayers would be for You. That our longing would be truly for You. Lord, I ask that you would grow my love and my affection for you and that you would do so for my friends. You are God most high. We're your creation. You want to be our beloved, the great lover from heaven. We pray this in Christ's name.